How's everybody doing? Yeah, a little bit of energy in the room. I like it. Nine o'clock, got some coffee in you. You the early people. You just bounce out of bed. You those people. You know, get my, I'm, I'm one of those people, and my kids hate it. They're like, you have no control over the volume of your voice, do you? And because they're they like right now with online school, they, they get up. This is my kids routine. This is my bad parenting on display. They get up and they they log into whatever they got to log into. And then they get a blanket and they just curl up right next to it and just sleep while the thing's happening. And we had not checked the grades, grades lately, but we'll see what's happening. If you got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 16. You guys have made it. We've done two eight week blocks in the book of Romans and we are now at the end. Isn't this amazing? I mean, I'm pretty, I, I know that not all of you have been to, or probably nobody's been to every single one. I have not been to every single one. I've watched a couple of these online because I've been off and other people have preached, but man, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And uh, you know, you'd think we'd run people off because we've talked about predestination. We've talked about unconditional election. We've talked about homosexuality. We've probably mentioned circumcision about 18 times and you're all still here. It's fantastic. Um, but now we are in Romans chapter 16 where we're in the end. And the apostle Paul, as we've been saying over the last few weeks, he's made a transition. There's this beautiful thing that the apostle Paul has been doing. He's been putting the gospel on display in the book of Romans. It's known as the greatest treaties of the gospel that is in all of scripture. And it's one of the most, it's one, it's considered one of the great literary works of all time inside biblical worlds and outside of the biblical world and the secular world. It's an amazing book. And the apostle Paul has been leading us beyond the simplicity of just pulling your ticket, saying a prayer and saying, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I get to go to heaven to this idea of understanding the depth of our depravity, understanding the depth of our brokenness and the distance in which Jesus came, this relentless pursuit to buy us back, to restore our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And as I was thinking about Romans chapter 16, if anybody, I don't know if anybody ever reads ahead, but it's a list of names. You ever come across a list of names in the Bible? And I mean, let's be honest. Do you ever just go, all right, blah, 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 let's move on, right? But there's, there's a reason that it's in there. And as you dig into passages like these, you all of a sudden, what comes to life is you realize the, the author and God, there, there is, there's a reason that it's in there and they're speaking something over us with this list of names. And as I read this list of, list of names, what came to the surface to me, and you'll understand why, is that you're no longer an orphan. Like you are no longer an orphan. And the Apostle Paul, at the end of his greeting, is, it's one of the last things he wants us all to understand. And he doesn't even use the term orphan. Now he does use the term you know, you've been bought, you've, been, you've, you've become adopted sons and daughters. You know, you've got this adoption that you are now, you're no longer an orphan, but you are a child of God. But you will, you will feel this idea of you're no longer an orphan. You are a loved son of God. You are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, inheritors of what God inherits. But as we think about this, there's this tension that we're born as orphans separated from God. And if you study anything about orphans, that our orphans, even after they're adopted, tend to act like orphans again. Like Leslie said, we tend to go and, and try to sustain life under our own power. And I just wanted to show you an example of, you know, when I saw this video, I was like, that is so me in life. When I'm living without God and when I'm living without the people of God, when I'm outside the family of God and doing it on my own, this is what it looks like.
<laughs> oh, goodness. You know, that kind of describes, you know, the self-sufficiency that, that all of a sudden, I think, got revealed in 2020. Like, we all of a sudden realized we need something greater. We, we need something more than ourselves. We need a family. And it's been interesting this year. But like I said, you know, we're born as orphans separated from God the Father, our Creator. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. There was this separation. This, there was this moment where Adam and Eve said, hey, we can do this on our own. We can roll around. We can, do, we can live life. Any, you know, we, we can be our own gods. We can be the captain of our own ship. And all of a sudden, the human race, because of sin, because of our sin, we became orphans. But there's this miracle that takes place. And we read this in the book of Galatians and in Romans. And it's, it's read like this. The Apostle Paul says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That's, that's us. We were under the law. We had no shot other than being perfect when it comes to the law, which we couldn't. He said to redeem us, those of us that are under the law, that we might receive adoption. So you are no longer a slave, no longer an orphan, but, a, but God's child. And since you are his child, you are, you, God has made you also an heir. In Romans 8, 15, it says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Don't walk back. But rather, the spirit you received brought, you about, brought about your adoption to sonship. And in him we cry, Abba, Father. That's an amazing miracle for those of us that, that have found Jesus. It's really not just this idea of pulling our ticket and someday we'll, we'll realize what heaven's like and it'll be nice. But no, we are, we've been actually brought into a family. We were acting like orphans, executing life like orphans. We were walking around self-sufficient. We were walking around competing with one another for love, for approval, for all of the things that adopted or uh, orphan, orphans do. They compete for food. They compete for life. They compete for a seat at the table. They understand the pecking order in life. And they find out where they fit into the pecking order. Where are the good people? How can, what corner do I need to be in so that I can be in a good position? How can I look better so somebody will pick me, so somebody will choose me? That's the orphan mentality. And although we are no longer orphans and adopted as children of God, we often act like or orphans, don't we? And we often want to be chosen. We often want to be picked. We often look to people rather than to God for our approval, for our love. We often compete with one another rather than invite and welcome one another to the table. And what I love about this passage is the Apostle Paul, with this list of names, says, I want to show you what it looks like to have a group of people that are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. I want you to greet them. And he commends them for the things that they do. He says, this, look, at the, look at this group of people. Look at this collection of people. These are not orphans. They're no longer orphans. And he wanted the church at Rome to see these people. He wanted them to understand something and see something. So if you got your Bible, turn with me and we'll, we'll go through some of this. And 
And uh, it is, it's amazing to me how God takes a list of names and all of a sudden by the power of His Spirit and the intention of the Spirit in and through the Apostle Paul, things come to life. He says in verse 1 in Romans chapter 16, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea, and I ask you to receive her in the Lord. Now, a deacon means servant. But it also is an office, and some people will argue that, oh, she was just a servant of the church, and she was never a deacon, and people get into the whole leadership thing. But if you study who Phoebe was and her positioning and how they mention her in Scripture, uh, it's more likely that she actually held the office of deacon in the church, which was somebody that was taking the weight off of certain areas of the church and carrying a certain portion of the leadership when it came to serving. So it says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, also another thing that you'll find out about Phoebe, if you study and you you see the other areas she's mentioned in Scripture, and you read the commentary about Phoebe, that it was very likely that she was wealthy, that she gave away her resources, that she had a place for people to stay, and people benefited from that. As people were traveling around, as people were carrying the gospel in different places, as people were in need in the church, She brought people in and she took care of them, including the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, I want you to to recognize her. Now, in this list, Phoebe's the only one that's not in the church at Rome. She's She's been taking these letters back and forth. So she's the one that showed up with this letter. Like Paul is still in Corinth from what we know. And she's the one that's handing the letter. And obviously she's opening the letter to find out that he is commending her and commending this group of people. Verse 3, it says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And it goes on in this passage, and you, you, you should go through and read this, but I'll, I'll read you how the Apostle Paul highlights these people. I think this is going to be up on the screen. He mentions Phoebe as the deacon and the servant, benefactor of many people, including Paul. Co-workers in Christ, he says about Priscilla and Aquila. And he goes on enlisting these people, risking their lives. These people risk their lives for each other. Opening their houses, working hard in Christ, working very hard in Christ. They were dear friends. They were faithful. It says that they were chosen, that they were hospitable, and that they were brothers and sisters. Now, I think it would be tragic if we, if we just breezed by this because there's some things that the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage as he's highlighting this. So, so cool to see a leader do this, too. From a pastoral standpoint, there was some conviction and some joy as I, as I read this. One, the Apostle Paul knows that people need encouragement. And honestly, you know, he's thankful for these people. He, he's, he's really thankful. He's also highlighting the beauty and unity that's only possible in Jesus. There's this diverse list of names. If you go through it, I mean, you've got Herodias, uh, Philogolus, you've got Rufus, and you know, you've got all these different names, and there's all different backgrounds if you go and study those names. I mean, you've got Greek, Jew, Asian, Roman, many other nationalities represented, all brothers and sisters, all coming together. And there was significant divisions between these people in normal life on planet Earth. And now they're all considered family. They're all considered brothers and sisters. No longer orphans, separated, living lives for themselves, but brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, men and women are co-laborers. The gospel undid what society created and the distinctions were removed. In their society, if you, I mean, we talk about the oppression of certain groups of people, certain genders, and we talk about the oppression of certain races. In their day, it was 
dramatic. Like it was, there was, and people just lived with it. There was, I mean, it was so, there was such a, a disparity between where men were and women were in terms of consideration in their society. It would be un, un, just unheard of to start off a letter commending a woman and then mentioning men and women or men next. It just would, you would reorder everything based on the way society worked. But even in his letter, he all of a sudden pulls it apart. The idea that some of these people were royalty and some were slaves is never mentioned. Nobody's class, nobody's pecking order. He's, he's commending them because they're, they're in Christ, because they're faithful, because of the way that they're serving each other, because of the way they're giving their lives away. Not because, they, not because of the, their position or status. It's pretty amazing what he's doing here. But as you look at this, you begin to see some of the characteristics the Apostle Paul highlights because he's not wanting the church. And I, I want you to see a couple of things. And we've got you know, just three pretty simple points today. But just this idea, when you think about orphans, they are self-reliant. These are people that will compromise what is right just to be picked. Orphans push others out in order to belong. I mean, these are real characteristics of orphans. Orphans' loyalty is subject to those that can help them, circumstances, and it changes frequently. But you begin to look at this list of names, you begin to look at these people, and they are the opposite. Their loyalty is to their father and to their brother and sisters, to their, to their family. They don't push others out in order to be in. They are already in, people. They are children of God. So the one thing that I want you to see, and I think that comes off of the page, because the word of God is always about revelation. It's not about this is what you should do with life. It's about our eyes being open and seeing what's possible. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing in the book of Romans. He's saying, this is the gospel. This is the distance in which Jesus came to come rescue you. And this is what happens in the spiritual transformation. This is what's possible for you. And hey, look, it really works. Look at this list of people. Look at these people that you see in the church of Rome. Commend these people. Greet these people. Hug these people. Greet them with a holy kiss. They're obviously not in a viral pandemic. But he's saying highlight these people because they are putting the gospel on display in the way that they are acting like they are part of a family. And they know that they are. So number one, the gospel heals orphan mentality. Number one, we see that in this, in this passage, that normally people wouldn't act like this. This was unusual for people to be generous like this. This was unusual for people to all of a sudden that were, had different ideology, ideologies, different lifestyles, different nationalities, different genders, to all of a sudden come together, not to take from one another, but to give to one another for one singular focus and purpose. But the thing that we wage war against, and I think the Apostle Paul wants us to see, is this idea of self-reliance. Because I think in our society, what we find, when we, come, when, we, when we find ourselves in trouble, in tension, like Gerald said, when we find ourselves in that place, immediately we find ways to cope, we find ways to fix it, we find ways to, you know, do it ourselves. We can fix this, we can clean up the mess, I'll spoil, I peeled, I peeled, I gotta fix it. We, fit, we try to do that in, in life in every way. We are always going to, we, we look towards ourselves because the Apostle Paul would even say, and he does early on in Romans, he says, look, I'm a child of God. I, I, I'm approved of by God. My righteousness doesn't come from me. It comes from God. But I still do the things that I don't want to do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. 
I still have struggles with the old man. There's still, the penalty of sin has been removed. And now all of a sudden the power of sin has been broken and I can walk this way towards life, but I often walk towards death. And he's encouraging the church at Rome, you could still walk towards death. You could still be self-reliant. But sons and daughters, they rely on their father and they rely on each other. I just wanted to read you this quote. Self-reliance creeps in, corrupting our awareness of our own corruption. We don't even know that it's there sometimes. And awakening a fresh confidence in our own energy and effort. I think there's seasons in life where it's easy to be self-reliant because it works sometimes. Sometimes we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and fix things but it leads us away from the, the, the beautiful nature of who the, how the family of God operates in knowing and understanding that we all need Jesus. We are desperate for him. You are no longer an orphan. And one of the things that you see here is that orphans don't roll, I mean, ch- children of God don't roll solo. Orphans are often independent and off to themselves. But the family of God, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, don't roll solo. Even the Apostle Paul. I love that this was challenging for me because even the Apostle Paul, look at the people that he knows. I mean, Paul's a pretty big deal. Like he's not just part of one church, but he's got Ephesus, he's got Colossae, he's got uh, Philippi, he's got the church at Rome, he's got Thessalonica. He's got all these churches that are being planted and he's pastoring and leading, writing, writing letters to, traveling to, speaking to. And all of a sudden, he's talking about people on a personal level because these are his brothers and sisters. He's not off with his security guard going, stay back now that I'm the big pastor man. Please stay away from me. I've got important things to do. He's like, no, I know these people. I know these people. I know Priscilla and Aquila. I know these people. I've stayed at their house. I've, I've I watched Priscilla mentor Aquila. I, I've, seen, I've seen these people. I've, I've hung out at Rufus's house. He's faithful. His mom's like a mom to me is what he says. I stayed in that house. She cooked me soup. And it was great. He knows these people because they're family. It represents that we don't do these things by ourselves because we're no longer orphans. We're not self-reliant. We rely on each other. We were not made to be alone, you and I. And I think it's so easy, especially in our society now. I mean, I think we, we use the crutch of social media and we use the, of, you know, that's how, that's how we're connecting. You know, you could be in the same room with 10 teenagers and they are all independently on phones, completely isolated in a room. And it feels like we all came together to hang out and all of a sudden, beep, and adults do it too. You ever go in a restaurant and just say, I want to see how many people are literally staring at their phone right now. And you can go from table to table to table to table. It's a massive amount. I mean, we are in an isolated culture. These things, like, I think one of the reasons we get so excited and we erupt in here and we sing these songs, we're like, we, we don't even know it, but subconsciously we know we need human connection. I mean, Leslie comes bounding up here so excited, like, holy smokes, this is awesome. And there's a reason. That's real. We need each other. God has intended for us to come together, one singular voice, one singular heartbeat, not to roll solo. You see, orphans, they thrive outside of that or they, don't, they, they, they think that they thrive outside of that realm. They don't even understand and know and understand that they need that adoption into a family. To understand and know that they're co-heirs with Christ, that they're sons and daughters, that they're brothers and sisters. You know, this week I, uh, I sat with my staff and right at the beginning of staff meeting, I just, 
I just thanked the staff. And it wasn't some systematic thing that I was doing because I was reading Romans chapter 16. I hadn't even dove back into that passage, you know, uh, since a couple of weeks ago when I started creating my outline. Um, and I just sat there and through tears, I just thanked the staff. And I said, I, it, you, it can be lonely being a pastor or a leader of any kind. I think you can find yourself isolated, making decisions and doing certain things. And especially in a season like this, like in a viral pandemic, things 2020 with all the weirdness and craziness, um, it could feel alone. With all the disunity across the, the landscape of our country, inside and outside the church, unfortunately, it could feel isolating. But I haven't felt that. And I looked around at my staff, and I, I, we, we are just, by the power of the Spirit, we are enjoying blessed unity. And I just cried. I was sitting next to my wife, and she started crying. And it is true. I have not, and I told them, I have not, I, I, I should, based on what normally happens in these situations, feel alone, isolated, frustrated. And like, I, you know, I, every decision that I make seems to be the wrong one. If I make this decision, these people aren't happy. If I make this decision, these people aren't happy. Nobody seems to be happy, right? But I haven't felt alone. And I looked around at them in tears. And there's and many of you, I could say that. Our anchors, our finance committee, and our elders have been amazing. But the only reason that that, that, that that is not because I'm a great leader or a pastor or a great Christian. It is the gospel working in and through you, working in and through my staff, and making us into a family. All, all people from different backgrounds, from different locations coming together for one singular purpose. It's the gospel that I'm receiving from the church. And I just thought in that moment, if that's not you, if you're not a part of a body, like we, we always say this, church isn't somewhere you attend. It's not. You're going to feel uncomfortable here because I'm going to say this so much over time. It is not somewhere you attend. It's somewhere you belong. It is family. It is family. It's the way that it works best. And if you feel disconnected, if you've come in feeling disconnected, I'm just telling you, there are ways to connect. And it's, you know, we have creative ways to do it. Put it on a screen and that's what everybody knows the rhythm. You know, you do the thing, scan the code. I'm going to get in a city group. I'm going to do the, the normal trajectory in a church. But in that, it takes effort. It takes this understanding and knowing my tendency is to be an orphan and isolate myself. My tendency is to, you know what, this morning I don't think I want to be there. My tendency is to not want to be attached to a new group where I walk into a room of 15 people where it's awkward because I don't know any of these people and I'm probably not going to like half of them, city group, right? But man, there's something beautiful that happens when the gospel intersects us in that way for one singular purpose. All of a sudden, people that on, nor on a normal day, because of affinity, because of your interests, you wouldn't be friends. And all of a sudden, you're brothers and you're sisters. It is powerful. And I mean, it is the way that God says, this is the engine. This is the Holy Spirit power of the church that will be united and be this wrecking ball to the world around it. To bring anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus. It's the way that it works best. And the Apostle Paul is highlighting it here in this passage, it is so powerful. So powerful. You are no longer an orphan. You are a child of God. And the second thing that I wanted you to see here and that, that rises up from the passage is that the enemy knows that you were once orphans. The enemy knows how to lead you back into acting that way, receiving your approval from other people, competing, backbiting, getting frustrating, allowing anger to overcome our unity. In Romans 16, 
the Apostle Paul, or in Romans 16, uh, starting verse 17, he begins to talk about it. He says, hey, there's something really particular I want you to understand when it comes to unity and disunity. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. I love this because we are in a, we are in a society where there is so much information coming at us. And there's a lot that looks and feels good and pricks at the heart, the, the tensions of the heart. And I think right now in our, at least for me and my my life in church and my life in pastoring a church, now more than ever, the doctrine of God is, is under attack. Now more than ever, it is under attack. This idea that we should come and deconstruct the Bible as no longer being inerrant, that the things that we thought were foundational are no longer foundational. Those type of things are happening. Now, one of the questions that I had in reading this passage is, you, you, if you were with us in Romans chapter 14, what is the Apostle Paul saying in Romans 14? He's saying, unite at all. It, like, it, it, don't divide over stupid stuff. Like if this person thinks this, and this person thinks this, and one's right and one's wrong, or one's the more mature Christian and one is the weaker Christian, the, the more mature Christian can, can just lean towards. If it's a nonsensical thing, like Dan used the example of, you know, a vegetarian versus somebody that eats meat. In their case, it was food sacrificed to idols versus the, diet, the, the traditional Jewish diet. So meat and veggies. He's like, hey, you, the, for those of you that know that you're free, and the Apostle Paul was saying, hey, you're free to eat meat, you're free to eat veggies. We're no longer under that banner of law. But if that bothers somebody, then don't be chowing down on the barbecue around them, you know? If that's, the, if that's their issue, then let's not divide over that. And you could put a lot of things in that list. That un, Let's be unified that with one singular voice, one heartbeat, we glorify God with our lives. Stop getting distracted by small issues. He says that in Romans 14. And then in 16, all of a sudden he says, hey, you need to, you need to look out for people. There's certain people you should divide yourself from. That guy, you need to run from him. So what's the problem? Well, this is different, right? He's, he's talking about smaller issues in the church that are not like things that are dividing from the foundation of doctrine. What this shows us is there is a doctrinal standard. There is a doctrinal standard, like this idea of deconstructing Christianity and trying to put it back together in a way that it feels good in your heart places. That, he's, that is the danger that the Apostle Paul is talking about. And it's happening all over the country, in our community, in our church, it happens. And it's one of those things the Apostle Paul is warning against. Beware of the smooth talkers that draw us in with things that move the heart. They make sense to our flesh. People will say things that make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. It, fe it feels right. But those things oppose biblical doctrine. You know, I was in uh, students a couple, speaking to students a couple of weeks ago, and I, uh, I, I love speaking there. You get to do the craziest illustrations. Not that I haven't done some ridiculous ones in here. Um, and some of them go terribly wrong. One, I had a pellet gun and a balloon. It was bad. But I, uh, I, this one I, I, I put together, and I was so nervous that it wasn't going to work. Um, but we were talking about the good shepherd. We're talking about the, you know, 
How are, who leads your heart? Like who's on the throne of your heart? Who is leading your heart today? And I, I was talking, I was uh, reading out of the book of John, this idea that, the, that, that we are the sheep and he is the shepherd and we need to know and understand his voice. How do we know and understand his voice? So I had this illustration and I got a volunteer. I kind of set it up as a game. It was called Us Against the World. And this kid named Dylan, he came up and I felt bad. It was his first time at students. And I knew how the illustration was going to go. And I didn't know it was his first time, by the way. Um, and he comes up. He says, I'll do it. I said, all right, you go with Grant. He's going to blindfold you, and he's going to give you some instructions. And so Grant takes him off and says, hey, when you go back into the room, everybody's going to be shouting you instructions. They're going to be telling you things to do. If you do the right thing and you go to the right location, you will get a massive prize. If you don't, you will lose and they will get a massive prize. And he, he said, some are trustworthy voices and some are not trustworthy voices. He's gonna be blindfolded, mind you. And I'm in here telling these people, I said, okay, I need one more volunteer. You are gonna be Dylan's secret teammate. And it was uh, Presley Odom. She was awesome, best volunteer ever. And I went over to her and I said, hey, do you know Dylan? Because it would be awesome if you knew him and you, like, he, like, he knew your voice, that would be pretty sweet. And she said, I've been to his birthday party. And I was like, that's good. Let's do it. And so she came up. And uh, so she was going to be in the crowd. They weren't allowed to leave their seats. And we were going to have this just crazy thing. And they're just instructed. I said, hey, look, there's this massive, I had a bucket of candy. That, it was so big. Like everything, I, I used your tithe money to buy Twizzlers. I'm sorry. It was fantastic. It was massive. And I said, okay, you guys out here, you are going to, uh, you, you're going to try to keep Dylan from getting to the stage, no matter what. You can make him pick up chairs, give him ridiculous instructions, do whatever you can. But whatever you do, don't let him get to the stage. Because if he gets to the stage, him and his secret team member, Presley, they are going to get all of the candy. If they don't get here and you can keep them from getting here, we're going to do a little candy shower. And they were like, yeah. And so we did the thing. Dylan walks in for, for round one. It was going to be two rounds. He walks in for round one. And I mean, it's never been louder in here. I mean, it was like, no, you can't do that. Pick up a chair. And he's picking up a chair. He's like, he, I felt so bad for him. It was so loud. He was like, rain man. Ah! And so I ended round one pretty quickly. And we sent him off. And Grant gave him some more instructions. He said, okay, this time when you go in, Listen for the one singular, consistent voice. Listen to that voice. It will lead you, okay? And go where it tells you and do what it tells you to do. And I came in here and I let them know, look, you got to stay in your seats. But Presley, she can get within three feet of Dylan. And she can whisper to him and tell him what to do. And they were like, no, that's not fair. I said, I make the rules. And so he comes in. <laughs> He, and it was, I was wondering if it would work. And he comes, he comes in that back door and it was the sweet, I almost cried just seeing sweet Presley. She was just the voice of God just going, come this way, don't listen to them. Come this way, don't listen to them. Walking down this aisle over here. And they were, I mean, you should have seen, Leo Whitmire was about to lose his mind. He was like, don't go. He got everybody doing a chant. Don't go, don't go, don't. And he's just coming along, he's just coming along. And Presley leads him all the way up on stage. And it was amazing the illustration because we are in a place we are in a world with lots of different voices in an instant somebody can send you an article that that they say hey this is the way I think God works this is a, a book that I'm reading and that's the reason that we need to be together because not all of us know all the time I have to ask people all the time is this guy okay is this guy okay no he departs from inerrancy he departs from this we need each other to understand where the smooth talkers are some people do it unknowingly I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul had to correct Peter. He had departed from the word of God. You remember that? And he talks about it in Galatians. He talks about it in Acts. He was all of a sudden 
putting himself, acting like an orphan again, in the pecking order, put himself and hung out and ate lunch with all his Jewish brothers and sisters and left the Gentiles over here and said, these are the people that I'm going to eat with, these are the people I'm going to hang with, and kind of isolated himself from the Gentiles after knowing full well and seeing the miracle that the Gentiles were coming to faith. And the Apostle Paul calls him out. So he doesn't, he divide, he doesn't divide from him in a sense of rushing him, kicking him out of the church, but he calls him out and says, this has got to change. This has got to change in this particular moment. So how we treat people is not like, oh, oh they got bad doctrine. Let's boop, boop them out of the church. But being bold in the way that we lead people as we're in the church, there are so many people that can come along and woo us away. And, it, and it's, it's so soft and subtle. There's a guy named uh, Parker Williamson. He uh, does tons of studies in history, but he talked about one of the, you know, how heretics operate. And he mentions this guy, Arius. And this is how he talks about it. He said he was bright, it's from the 17th century. He was bright, energetic. He was an attractive fellow, the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome because we're all in the Rotary Club. Singing, this 17th century, this guy singing sea chanties at dockside pubs, teaching Bible stories to Wednesday night faithful. Man, I want to be there. That would be awesome. This was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that heresy does not bludgeon us into belief. We are seduced. And we are in the information age, and I think we can be so easily seduced into leading back into a life of an orphan, leading back into a place where we all of a sudden, we want everything that this world has to offer when we have the unending ocean of grace because we are no longer orphans, but we are sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters. You know, I, I, I know a pastor here dealing with a, he, there's a guy that's influential in his church, and he's doing this deconstructing thing, meeting with people. And he's, he's really having a difficult time because this guy's all of a sudden got a foothold and a voice. And he's a nice guy, just like this guy, Arius. Same type of personality. And I'm telling you, it can dismantle the church in the way that it works. Now, does that mean, I read something that John Piper says. He said, you know, I, I, I don't even want to say this because it's, I don't think it's the main problem, but we also want to be careful of not being those doctrine people that aren't very welcoming. Like, that's bad doctrine. Have you ever read this? Because that's totally, you know, like that person in Citigroup. Like, we do want to welcome and greet people like the Apostle Paul's doing here. We don't want to be those theology police that all of a sudden shut down any sense of the welcoming grace that exists in church. He says there's a balance to it. He says, but definitely watch out for people that, that move away from the foundational doctrines of the church. Thirdly and lastly, hold on to hope. I love that we've got this one singular verse because it's right here and it's so beautiful. Romans 16, 20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And again, that's, that's amazing because we've, we've got the Genesis story. It all goes bad in chapter 3. But the, the prophecy even then in Genesis was what? That the Son of God would crush the serpent's head under his heel. And the, the Apostle Paul's bringing that up right here to bring and give us hope. To use the words of Martin Luther, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And in this one sentence, I love that you don't see the, the, just the mention of Satan in all of the book of Romans. He gets one shout out. There's a lot of names mentioned in Romans. There's a lot of names in Romans chapter 16. But there is one shout out to Satan. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's all. He gets one mention. And the mention is he's doomed and he will be 
crushed. I love this. In the world that we're in, when we think about the enemy, the one that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and lead you away, make you believe that you're still alone, make you believe that you're still an orphan. orphan. The way that we can look at this, because God has defeated Satan. There's these ways that we can sum up the work of Christ as he's destroying Satan in three stages. One, Satan has decisively defeated in death and resurrection In the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan is no more. He is being defeated now by Christ through Christians who speak the word of God and who put on the whole armor of God. And thirdly, he will finally be vanquished and thrown into the lake of fire to deceive, to never deceive or torment the world again. You see, we live in the number two. We live in this. He's being defeated now by Christ through Christians under our heel in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we speak the word of God over one another. The enemy is powerful, but he doesn't know everything. And when Jesus entered the scene, I think the shock was all of a sudden, Jesus was saying these things like, hey, it's not just the the churchy people, the religious people, the Pharisees, the ones that are, are... think they have a shot with God. You people over here that have no shot with God, you've now got a shot with God. I'm for those people. 99 righteous people over here, yeah, you know, that's, that's all well and good, but for the one person that thought they had no shot, for the one lost sheep, for the one that is, has gone astray, if that one sinner claims Jesus, repents, and turns to God, there will be a party in heaven. So no matter where you are, poor or rich, he's, the things he said, and the enemy's like, well, how's he gonna do that? He's telling me the poor and the rich, the broken, the sinful, the prostitute, the one that's been divorced, the one that's had an affair, the one that has this person, this, wor- this person that's, that's worthless, you're telling me they're, they're gonna be in along with these other people, that, these, these religious people? And Satan's like, oh no, that's not gonna happen because I'm going to kill him. I'm going to crush him. And Jesus is thinking, yep, you're going to kill me. It's going to go down. But ultimately, the cross of Jesus Christ, the crushing of Jesus was the very thing that would allow anyone and everyone, nobody excluded today. And I don't care where you've come from, but the blood that he poured out on Calvary was for you. It was for you. He's inviting you in Right now, in this moment, if you've come in alone, you've got a father that loves you and wants to be reunited with you. And he's done everything that he needed to do for that to happen. You've got a family that welcomes you. You've got brothers and sisters. So you don't have to be alone. You're free from having to be somebody because you know somebody that is somebody. His name is Jesus. If God, your Father, is for you, then who can be against you? What good news we have, brothers and sisters. And for those that are outside the faith and hadn't figured it out, man, the door's wide.
wide open. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are, how you move and how you work. We love your word. God, speak it over up. Burn it into our heart. Burn it into our mind. God, we need it with all of the noises, with all of the voices, with all of the shouts. We need to hear that one singular voice leading us home.